In the age of Instagram and social sharing, brick-and-mortar businesses offer a unique advantage that even the biggest and best online platforms can't compete with. On Brick and Mortar Reborn, we talk with business owners and industry experts about what they're seeing work best for brick and mortar businesses who aren't just competing with their online counterparts, but thriving in spite of all the options that customers now have. We'll share exactly what you can do to set yourself up for success with an experience that wows your customers and keeps them coming back for more. And now our host, Bobby Maramat. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Brick and Mortar Reborn. Uh, today, we have a very special guest, Paul Condor. From, he's a VP of a Customer Experience at Calson RTKL. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Pleasure to meet you, Bobby. You likewise as well, as well. Um, you know, Paul, so why don't you give us, uh, to start out, why don't you give us a little bit of a brief of uh, what, what you're up to, uh, what your company's all about, and uh, kind of go from there. Our company is the number one retail architecture and design firm in the world. We also have other practices uh, that are very strong in healthcare, uh, commercial architecture and design, and uh, also in workplace. We have 22 offices around the world, and I head up our customer experience team, which is a global service that backs up all that design work, where we take a look at what the customer uh, is actually doing in these spaces and how we can best create a connection with them, how we can sort of build empathy with them to understand where they're coming from, create an offering that's super relevant to them, and then figure out a way to sort of test and learn and and deploy that in the space so that it's not just a good idea when it starts. It's something that continues evolving and continues getting better as you operationalize it. It seems like you've been working uh, with some really fun brands, uh, Nike, SoulCycle, Starbucks. Tell me a little bit about how it is uh, working with those uh, those companies and, and developing these strategies. We're very lucky that we get to work with a really wide range of brands. And while I know this conversation is about retail, one of the strengths that we have is that we're able to work across all these different practices. So we've yes, we get to work with the, you know, the Nikes and the Starbucks and things, uh, which is great. But uh, we also get to work with some smaller brands that can be very scrappy, startups, direct-to-consumer brands brands that are digital first. Uh, and then we also work, we do a lot of work, our team with um, hospitality brands. And uh, even in places like uh, urban planning, there's a whole team that's headed up in LA that focuses on placemaking and what the experience is like for sort of large urban developments. We get to play with that sometimes as well. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a really great mix. And we're, we're able to sort of combine different ideas across all the practices to be able to make them work better. So what happens when you put retail and hospitality and healthcare together? Things like that. You you get really interesting answers out of that as opposed to thinking I'm designing a hospital. You're thinking in terms of I'm designing a really great experience for a patient. It's a fun space to play in because we get to deal with all these different things and lots of varied clients. It's not just the big guys. As you're kind of working with the different uh, clients, um, do you think, uh, you know, of course, we're in the middle of the pandemic, but over the last few years, kind of before before this pandemic, it, have things changed in the in-store kind of environment that have led to kind of different advice that you've given kind of retailers? There's been a lot of change. A lot of it's been pushed by initially because of the implementation of digital technology and retail. But it's more than that. It's really a cultural shift and it's a shift in customer expectations. Uh, customers are setting the bar extremely high, not just in terms of the digital experience, but also in terms of what actually happens in the store in terms of the quality of service. Their expectations are for just a frictionless environment. They don't have any hassles. They don't want any hassles in it, waiting, queuing, anything around a transaction being a bit of a pain in the butt. Any of that sort of stuff uh, is just is just going away. And retailers that still have these kind of awkward kind of customer journeys are finding that they're getting in a lot of trouble. 
We do a lot of measurement now with customer effort score, uh, where we take a look at how much effort is involved in actually doing business with a brand. And we find that that's actually a really good metric as opposed to things, well, there's nothing wrong with NPS and stuff like that, but looking at how much effort's involved in a transaction is actually a really good barometer on whether or not people will be sort of loyal to that brand. They expect access to just about everything all the time, uh, and they want it right now. I live in New York City. You can get delivery in an hour, and not just for your dinner. I mean, for pretty well everything. There's also bigger cultural shifts that are happening out of this. There was a lot of talk about a shift of to privacy, You know how, how private people are going to be with their data and things like that. And I think that we're seeing younger people are a lot more open with that, which gives a lot of opportunities to be able to do things like personalization and automation and, and building accounts for people so that you can recognize them personally and all that. So all of those are changing at once. And so retailers having to get ahead of that, especially if you're, it almost doesn't matter what category you're in, everybody's being affected by that. And of course, competition is higher too, because you've got the e-commerce brands are able to sort of eat the lunch of anybody that is a commodified business. So yeah, lots of things happening at once. And, and when we think about how to advise retailers, usually what we do is we think in terms of where they're at right now and who their customer is going to be in a few years. And how can we get ahead of that group's expectations so that you nail that? It's not something where you're creating like a broad, we're going to be everything for everybody kind of thing. We think in terms of, all right, you're in this certain place now. You want to be over here with a specific customer group, let's learn everything we can about those people so that we can get ahead of what their needs will be in a few years and then create a gap analysis and sort of say, okay, how we can, how can we test and learn our way to be able to create an experience for these people later? Yeah. Does that process change, you think, um, with COVID-19 and being in, in this pandemic? Does any of that process change? Do you accelerate anything or deaccelerate anything as you're building some of these strategies in the retail store? This is a tiny silver lining compared to the gravity of what we're dealing with. I mean, the unemployment and the, the number of people that are sick and, and dead and all that. But there is a very small silver lining in our industry, which is that it's pushing people forward on things that they thought have been trends for 10 years. I mean, we've been talking about customer data. We've been talking about omni-channel. We've been talking about delivery. We've been all of this kind of stuff for years and years and years, contactless payment, all that. And now people are having to figure out in a matter of a couple of weeks. And if you're a big behemoth retailer, there's a limit to how much you can actually change things. But most retailers that I know have something like that in the pipe anyway. And we're working with a couple of retailers right now that are like, fine, before fall, we are going to have a new digitally activated retail platform that we're going to roll out. And they're using this time to think about that. We're working with a large uh, resort client right now where they're saying, all right, if we're offline for a year, if we're just admitting, hey, we're basically closed. How many big changes can we make during that time? And this, the smart businesses are using this time to get ahead of all this stuff because they know that these are things that not just affect COVID-19, they're going to improve your business later. That's sort of the silver lining in this. But you know, like I say, it's a small one compared to the, the size of the situation we're in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and is there, are there changes that you would, and I, and I know again in the beginning we talked about big brands that you're affiliated with, but also are associated with helping, but also you know kind of the smaller brands and needing to be kind of scrappy there. For those smaller brands and smaller retailers, any advice you can give of what to look for if they don't have all the tool sets you know, that some of these larger companies do? I think a smaller brand in some ways, especially if it's fairly young, has a lot of advantages. We are doing more and more work now with uh, DTC brands, direct-to-consumer. And these are brands that set up as digital first. And so if you're set up like an Everlane, for example, you already have a really great digital backbone that's kind of worked out and is ready to take to scale. And you're asking questions about, okay, how does my physical retail fit around that? 
And your definition of what retail is isn't a store with people that line up out front and come in and, you know, when the store opens and everybody's, you know, shopping in a physical environment. Your definition of retail is the whole system right from the ground up. Some of these people don't even use, um, some of these brands, I should say, don't even use POSs. They use their own website on a tablet. And so at the time of checkout, you're getting the person's account number. You're able to follow up with them. The journey that they take from there might be on your website or might be in your store. And to you, that's exactly the same thing. So in many ways, it's easier to change those brands. It's easier to evolve those brands because they're not at scale yet. They probably have a better digital infrastructure if they're fairly young. And if they're not, it's not as heavy a lift to go back. I think the people that are really in trouble are the ones that have these massive legacy systems where they can't make the data connect. They can't personalize things because you can't get it in the hands of the right person at the right time. They've got inventory all over the place that they can't track, you know, all that stuff. And that's usually the symptom of one of the bigger brands, actually, not the small guys. As you know, um, you know, it was actually interesting. I was talking to, to one retailer the other day that has a pretty strong, you know, digital side and their strategy is always their focus has been on the digital side. So they have a strong digital presence. But as they kind of think about their store environments, as people start to get back into, you know, shopping when it's, you know, of course, safe and and deemed as, you know, we can get back in, in there and, and be able to shop. What are some elements? Because one, one of the thought processes that they had is we're going to only allow a certain number of people to come in store now. So it's we have to actually be able to connect with them a lot faster and be able to hopefully get more revenue out of them so that we can sustain the same revenues that we had, you know, prior to this with a bunch of people walking into our store locations. Any advice that you can give uh, to optimize uh, at that level for the, for these brands? We're working on that right now with a few people. It's interesting to think of this. It actually comes down to a service design problem, really, is how do you get people feeling comfortable with the idea that maybe they have to make an appointment and you know maybe they have to line up, but then they line up 10 feet apart to get into the store. It's a bit tough, but I think that there are uh, things that you can do holistically to be able to improve things. One is start the journey online. So we just did a project recently where... The idea was that uh, the store was there to be able to sort of complete the last mile in a way of the, of the journey. So if, if you're a fully integrated omni-channel brand, I know omni-channel is a word that people, some people don't like to use anymore, but I actually think it's the right word. Um, your customer will educate themselves online. If they get it down to one choice, they just buy it online, which is great. They buy it from you. If not, they uh, come into the store to make one clear decision between two options, or maybe they just want to look at it first and get a feel for it before they actually have it. And so what they're doing in store is converting and they're not browsing. And so your conversion rates might go up, your traffic can go down. And that's a trend that we've been seeing overall anyway. So if you can emphasize that, integrate it so well across platforms that people are coming in educated, then that last few minutes where you need the service to be able to make the decision is something that you can offer in store and you can do it possibly even on an appointment base because they're already online. So you can make that appointment part a natural part of the journey and you have someone waiting for them who knows who they are and is able to take them from that moment in their journey forward because they understand what they were browsing they have it ready for them so that it's faster and they know to wipe the stuff down before they pass it off to the next person. All of that could be integrated into the journey end to end. And again, it's going to be those smaller DTC brands that are probably going to have the edge on this. It's, it's really hard to do that in a big department store or something like that. As you're thinking through things, of course, and of course there's a lot that we all are going to learn over the next few years, but there's the other end of the spectrum where there's some retailers that are uh, running in 10 different directions because uh, there's a lot of unknowns here. And so are there areas that you think uh, retailers should avoid going down? Uh, are there paths that they shouldn't be doing right now? 
that you think will will hurt them in the end uh, if they go down these paths? I think that there has been a tendency to think in terms of finding ways to reduce staff in retail. How do you get your costs down by reducing your staff? And my argument there for most categories, not all, but for most, is to say it's not about reducing staff, it's about reducing effort. And with that, you'll be able to reduce staff too, probably, but just because you'll make things easier. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's the right metaphor for that. The things that retail does really well are one-to-one service, personalization, letting people connect with the product, understanding the brand, creating a great experience, that kind of thing. And more often than not, the best retail experiences involve a good connection with a person. We do a lot of work with Nordstrom. That's a great example of that. It all comes down to that connection with the staff. And they do service so well. And it's because they empower the staff to do it. And if you took that away, you'd be in trouble. But the other thing Nordstrom did really well is they figured out their digital early. They're ahead of a lot of their competitors in that space. And I think that I think they're going to have an edge coming out of this. So I would say, yeah, I think that that's probably where I'd start. Let retail do what it does best. Being a part of that design process initially, you must see a lot of great experiences. Do you have do you have some favorite experiences over these amount of years that you've been working in the industry? Yeah, I do. I mean, lots of them. I really enjoy shopping at the Nike store right now. I'm a little biased on that one. And part of that is just because, the, the I mean, yes, it's the product. Yes, it's the architecture and all that sort of stuff. And the space is beautiful and all that. But um, they also have figured out how to do, how to make it really easy to buy something there. <laughs> and there's no POS, and there's no queue, and everything is really, really well thought out. And there's other stores that do that too. There was a great experience that I had in Vancouver a few years ago that I always use as an example of this and of a really great experience. And it it was an optician. They have this beautiful space in Gastown, which is an old part of the city. It's the oldest part of the city. And and you come across this really beautiful, it looks like this sort of 1890s interior, gorgeous old space, like fantastic, with just a few classes set up in it. And it's like, this is the kind of place you want to go in and sort of hang out. And I walked in and guy comes up to me, a little bit younger than me, tattooed up, you know, it just walks up to me and he's like, what are you looking for? And I said, well, I'm actually looking for a pair of crystal frame glasses, a little bit like what you're wearing right now, as a matter of fact. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, he, and he takes one look at me and sort of like looks around my head and sort of sizes me up a little bit. And he goes, I'm going to give you two options. If you don't love one of them, you should punch me in the effing face. <laughs> he didn't say effing. And I was, I was kind of taken aback for a second. And then he turns around, walks away and he goes, you look like a clash man. You a clash man? And I said, oh, what do you mean? He goes, you like the clash? Now, you could guess by my age and how I dress that I probably like the clash, but sure. And he and he throws on Sandinista, which is like my favorite clash album. It's not their most popular, but I love the record. And he uh, goes in the back and he th- comes out with two pairs of glasses. They're both perfect. They both fit me really well. And, I, and it's rare to find glasses that fit me. I've got a very wide face. And he knew exactly how to fit me, exactly the right product. The first ones that I tried on were exactly the ones. And I walked out of there in a few minutes. He made everything completely seamless. He called my optician or my ophthalmologist. He got the prescription. He arranged for, for everything on the back end so I could just walk out of there. He had a ringer in there, somebody else that came up to me and said that I looked really good in the classes and that they were just there to hang out. And actually, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, come on, that's a little bit cheap. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but I got out of there. It was super easy. It was super simple. And then when I had a warranty problem in about 18 months, They uh, couriered for free a new set of arms to me from Vancouver to New York, where I live now. And the guy remembered me when he picked up the phone. He said, hey, Clashman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Way later. And so it's personal. It's a beautiful space that attracted me in the first place. I wouldn't have gone in there there if the space didn't look good. He obviously had some kind of digital thing, something, a CRM thing in there somewhere where he could recognize who I was and what music I liked. I came up from automatically. 
he had the end-to-end experience completely worked out. I would go back there in a second. The place was called Durante Sessions. It was great. And Nordstrom can do something very, very similar. I know the people at Nordstrom. One of them has actually become a good friend of mine. And that's just through buying stuff there. And they know me and they know how to put exactly the right thing on me the first time. You never have that awkward feeling where it's like, I, this thing doesn't fit me. Why are you putting me in this, you idiot? That stuff never happens there. Or it's never happened to me. And you get this great personal connection with somebody where you tr- see them as a trusted advisor. Yeah, they've got a ton of digital. Sure they do. I can do all of this online. They can deliver it for me. They can do Nordstrom Local. I can go right to it. It's a perfect omni-channel solution almost. All of that is right there, but it comes down to that personal connection and having great product and then knowing how to put the right person into the right product and doing it effortlessly. Yeah, no, that's that's a great example. You're, you're making me want to go go buy glasses there. So yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great experience. <laughs> Next time you're in Vancouver, try it out. Next time you need a soup, go to North. We'll do, we'll do. Um, as I guess retailers are listening to this, you know, they're, they're, some are not the size of Nordstrom. Some, some could probably maybe make that same experience that you talked about in Vancouver. Are there areas that um, you think are have-to-haves? And I know every store's envi- environment is different, culture's different, brand's different. But are there have-to-haves in creating a good in-store experience? I think it, a lot of that depends on what category you're in. People's expectations around luxury have changed a lot. And it's been really interesting to watch. But that's not evenly distributed. And it's very different from country to country and from market to market. And so there's been so many changes there in the last little while. I don't know if there's any real must-haves other than the principles that we've been talking about around effortlessness, personalization, seamlessness. One thing that is very different when it comes down to scale, we were talking about scale earlier, is that the uh, to be able to scale and personalize at the same time, a small retailer has no problem with it because it's one store and they know everybody. A huge operation has to do it with a lot of different digital infrastructure because you're not going to, especially if people are moving around from store to store. And so the lift there becomes a lot heavier. So I might say personalization, but in the context of your brand, that might mean something completely different. It might be in a little black book and keeping things in your head in one place, and it might mean a massive database that comes up in all sorts of places that support staff interactions in another. So the principles are the same, but how you actually pull it off has everything to do with the category you're in how fast people's expectations are, what their expectation of luxury is, you know, all of that stuff. And of course your scale. Yeah, absolutely. Tying in, uh, you know, kind of that segmentation of customer and, and being able to build that experience based on that totally makes sense. Understanding your customer is absolutely key. What are their expectations? And not just who they are now, but who that customer is going to be in a couple of years. And that's stuff you can figure out, but it takes a bit of work. That's actually one of the questions that comes up a lot from um, some of the brands that we work with right now. Is my customer today going to be my same customer a year from now? And I think a lot of it has to do with the brand they build. But the other parts are, you know, kind of following that customer throughout their journey, you know, and trying to anticipate, you know, needs uh, in the future here. Are there any any things that you would pinpoint as, Eric, how can a retailer actually do that? Are there tactical ways that they can do that? Yeah, there are. Um, we, we do a fair amount of segmentation work, um, speaking with, uh, going out and, and, and speaking to customers first, doing the sort of qualitative upfront and, and speaking, to, speaking to them and sort of framing up really clear hypotheses based on actual feedback from the people that are doing business with them now. And then also sort of taking a look at where the business wants to go and thinking, okay, who would that be relevant to? So it's sort of, you're looking at it from both sides. And we do a lot of, you know, quant studies on this kind of stuff. But when we look at that, we're always thinking in terms of the psychographics as much or more than the demographics. We're thinking about people's attitudes more than we're thinking about their age group. You know, like the old studies used to think in terms of people between 35 and 47 who, you know, have a certain 
income level and they live in a certain place and stuff. And that tells you a bit, but it, you know, it's useful, but it, it's, I think people's attitudes are spreading out across generations a little bit more now. I think saying I'm going to target millennials is a really blunt instrument. And whenever I hear somebody say, oh, you know, how do we get more millennials in our store? I start getting a little worried and say, okay, you know, which, <laughs> which millennials are you talking about? There's a lot of them. And people aren't, aren't focusing on Gen Z as much as they should. Um, millennials are getting old enough now. There's another generation behind them that are acquiring wealth and have careers and are doing interesting stuff and have a very different perspective on these things. And so you, you know, I wouldn't just try to drill down by, by age. I would think in terms of what are the attitudes that you want, need to align your brand to to be able to create something relevant and, and start with that and then work backwards into how you can provide something that's the most meaningful. That sounds really abstract, but like a good example would be we worked with one retailer where we realized that there was an underserved market for them that was people in the suburbs, double income and have a couple kids and a pet and everybody's working and their big constraint was time. Okay. Everything was about time. So how do we reduce effort, make things faster make things easier for them to get. And we know they're digitally enabled. So you could drive the whole thing through a membership program that runs on an app. So you can go backwards from, okay, what are the, the, the main sort of constraints that you can find in that market from their psychographics and then build your brand to be able to cater to all that. And all your messaging turns into uh, stuff that's about saving time and effort and just making everything about convenience and quality. Because quality was very important in that, seg- in that segment for these people. So you can pull that one thing and that one insight is enough to drive the entire business, but it doesn't have to do with how old they are. And if you make it better for them, you'll probably make it better for everybody. Are there, as you've been, uh, and I know, you know, it, it, it's all about, you know, kind of figuring out what the brand wants to do and, and, and building kind of technologies that reinforce that strategy. But are there technologies that have been adopted over the last few years that you think uh, have been adopted at a faster pace than you expected? The coronavirus has really pushed things forward really fast. And a lot of people are moving really quickly. And some of it's sort of Band-Aid solutions and stuff, but it doesn't matter. Just try it, learn from it, you know, see what you can get out of it uh, around e-commerce and quick delivery and omni-channel and wellness sort of being transmitted into every part of a brand. And we're seeing a little bit more quality over quantity. People aren't buying the same volume of stuff, but they're looking for a little higher quality now. But then, you know, there's other technologies that are moving a little bit quicker than we initially anticipated. The ability for the sort of the automated customer service to be so good that you can't tell it's a bot, that's something that's going to become a lot more common. It works better through text now than it does through voice. Voice, you can pick it up pretty quickly, but that's just going to keep getting better. And I think more and more customer service interactions are going to fall over to that. We've had several retailers ask us about uh, facial recognition. That's something immediately everybody's creep level goes up. Like <laughs> you don't want to have yourself recognized everywhere like Minority Report. But that's technology that's out there. And we need to think about how, if we're going to implement that, how we do it in a way that's fair and equitable and provides real value to the customer, not just the brand. And I think that's been the tipping point in most of those technologies is that once it's something where the value to the customer outweighs the value to the brand, then it's something that becomes adopted. So that's what we've seen with uh, everything from mobile phones to use the customer data and retail, all sorts of things. And I think facial recognition is going to be the same thing. I think what it might lead to is sort of the death of the device in some way. The idea that your face identifies you, your payment is biometric. You don't need to be carrying this block of glass around with you anymore. Like we've gone, I used to carry like 10 devices with me, all sorts of things, you know, Palm Pilots and CD players and stuff. It got down to one device a few years ago. It could feasibly go to no device with ambient intelligence and and 
facial recognition and things like that being built into it. And and there's a there's a few other technologies like that that are a bit more a bit more out there. Five um, G is going to drive a lot. I think it's really unfortunate. I that think the, so too. Yeah. Yeah. The the telephone companies have really pushed five G a little bit too hard and a little bit too early. We're not seeing a big difference in the service that we're getting, even though it says five G on your phone. But the potential of that technology combined with edge computing is massive because it means that it takes the latency out of the signal and you wind up with information being able to flow from a location to a processor that's very close. So it's not constrained by the speed of light. So it's like cloud computing, but it brings it right to your right to the edge of your neighborhood. And so you wind up with the automation, personalization, AI being able to happen at a huge scale without a big heavy device living in the store or in your pocket. That'll unlock a lot, but it's going to take a few years. And it's unfortunate people look at it right now and sort of say, oh, 5G, it's like, you know, whatever. It's no fast. But when that actually is up and running and is really working, I think that's going to unlock a lot and not just in retail. Paul, a lot of great information. Are there any uh, kind of last words for our, for our listeners on what the future of retail looks like or any sort of last pieces of advice? I think that what we're going to see going forward is that, you know, we talked a lot about technology in this. I think that the death of retail is greatly exaggerated, <laughs> as, as Mark Twain said. Um, we're going to continue seeing a cull on mediocre retail, and we're going to see a renaissance in direct-to-consumer, new retail, smart retail that's integrated well with technology. But the key to that is not going to be a whole bunch of tech gizmos around in your environment. I think that the store of the future is probably going to look more like the store of the past than the store of the present. It's going to have less obtrusive technology, smarter technology, more personal service, more hands-on interaction, human scale, human-centric, all of that stuff. And the tech will be smarter and it'll be in the background. And what it'll be doing is empowering the staff to be able to provide great service and connecting it to a platform that allows people to be able to serve themselves. And that future actually sounds pretty good. So how about I leave you with that? Agreed. Agreed. Again, Paul, thank you for your time. That was a lot of great information for our listeners and looking forward to uh, speaking again. Me too. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, keep in touch. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Brick and Mortar Reborn. To find the resources mentioned in this show and detailed show notes, head over to brickandmortarreborn.com.